0: Well, the trucks began arriving before daybreak on Monday outside a federal building in Orange County. The trucks were carrying thousands and thousands of applications for H-1B visas. Well, this year, it might be just slightly different for many of the companies seeking to hire people under the H-1B visa program. And here to tell us about it is Anurag Rana, our Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Anurag, let's begin with a definition of what the H-1B1 visa program is designed to do and then tell us about some of the uh, confrontations around this program
2: yeah the basic premise is that if you are looking for a highly skilled uh, person and uh, you are not able to find it uh, locally then you would use this program to bring somebody from outside now this is also used for students extensively it's all and but the biggest controversy i would say is that the opponents of this plan are saying that this these visas are being used by it services companies from india to bring uh, largely from india and other areas also to bring um, you know engineers at a much lower cost and displace workers so that's really the controversy or the uh, or the issue around it
1: so uh that so just to put this into perspective so the US administration uh under president Trump just made a change to basically double check essentially if i'm understanding this correctly uh applicants to get H1B visas how much does this shift change the game?
2: Uh, This one does not change, uh, you know, a whole lot, in my view. If when we looked at this thing after the elections, we thought there would be a lot more stricter regulations, maybe uh, on the, you know, on the on the salary minimums, or possibly, you know, something which we saw a couple of years ago, there was a there was a clause called the clause called the outplacement clause, which prevented companies, IT outsourcing companies to bring in people and then put it at somebody else's uh, uh, site to work. But none of those things have happened. And in fact... uh Um, you know, perhaps they're still working on, uh, you know, coming up with a new order for the next filing season. But for this filing season, which, uh, you know, is is ongoing right now, it doesn't look like it's going to have that big of an effect. Just to put it into context,
0: 65,000 H-1B visas are available to workers that have bachelor's degrees. 20,000 additional visas are available for those with master's degrees. But I like the number of people that applied last year. Two hundred and thirty-six thousand people applied for what are arguably eighty-five thousand places.
2: Yeah, one of the things I think this will happen this time would be uh, kind of a mix shift in the. In the kind of applications that go in, um, in in the prior years, a large portion of these applications were made by IT services companies, but this time they have said themselves that they're not going to be filing for a lot of these visas, um, which will give, let's say, that the you know the likes of Microsoft, Apple, uh, Google. Uh, you know more visas to file from, so their portion of this whole pool may increase into this season compared to the last several seasons.
1: Do we have visibility into just how dominant, uh, with respect to H one B visas, the lower wage kind of more rote workers are? In other words, how mu- how many of these jo- how many of these visas are going to people who are doing work that isn't as specialized as you would think, given the parameters set out by by the idea?
2: see, Lisa, I, you know, the, the, the salary minimum is about $60,000 or so. So it's not really anything A below that. Usually a lot of them have technology background or a science background. So you would have, you know, some kind of a bachelor's uh, degree for sure. Now it could be people with finance or it could be actually any degree. But one of the things that happens, and I, I don't think people realize this, when you're when you're filing for an H-1B, you have to go through a labor certification process, which means for that particular job posting, you have to go to the Department of Labor's database to see how much is that person getting paid and you have to make sure it's not below that certain amount now let's say that you know i'm just making this up let's say software engineer 1 is getting paid somewhere between 75000 and 85000 the company might decide to pay that person on the lower end but they can't just pay them twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 and, you know, completely, uh, you know, bypass the whole system. That's not possible. And for a lot of the IT services companies, even if they pay at the lower end, let's say between this band, if you add the visa application cost and the cost to bring them from an offshore location to the U.S., the net cost is the same. The big issue over here is, at least for engineering and science, we have a massive shortage of those people in the U.S.,
0: you also have a shortage of those people in research
2: institutions, correct? Absolutely. But there are certain nonprofits uh, and other areas, they actually uh, fall into a different visa category, so they might not be uh, you know, part of that same pool. Top recipients of these visas are Tata Consultancy
0: Services, Infosys and Wipro all based in India.
1: Although I will say it's very hard to know who the real beneficiaries are because those are outsourcing companies and it's unclear where exactly they're going to uh, place some of their uh, staff, correct? I mean, they could end up at a big bank or, you know, somewhere, something like that.
2: So there are two pieces of it. One is large banks have been outsourcing their IT divisions for multiple years, for 15, 20 years now. So they are, you know, they run IT departments on a skeleton basis and some of these companies are uh, working on their behalf. Second thing, there is a ratio of what we call an onshore, offshore ratio, uh, where if you have a legacy IT project, 70% of that work is done in, an, in a low cost country and 30% in a high cost. One of the unintended consequence of something like this could be, you could ship all of that work offshore. Because with communications, with high connectivity, You really don't need to be sitting at that client's location to do some work. Now, if you're looking at some emerging technology work, whether cloud or analytics, you would still require a high on-site presence. But if pressure like this continues, I expect a large portion of some legacy work to go more uh, offshore than, than, than what's intended to. So
0: it may have unintended consequences, maybe the exact opposite of what the current administration is hoping to do with the H-1B visa program.
2: Yes, because I don't think any bank is going to spend more money on IT uh, than they are currently doing right now. That, That growth rate is not going to be very rapid.
1: But just to be clear, to reiterate your point from earlier, uh, this particular change won't necessarily move the needle that much. But it sort of precedes what could be something that would be more substantive, uh, substantive, and and have a, a more significant effect. Correct?
2: Yeah, that could. Be, that's possible.
1: Anurag Rana, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Anurag Rana is senior analyst of software and IT services here at Bloomberg Intelligence.
0: A battle against Amazon in the vending machine business. Tom Mern is the founder and the chief executive of Viatouch Media, and he joins us now to explain his effort to push Amazon aside. Tom Mern, thanks very much for being with us.
3: Thank you. Good
0: morning. Good morning. Uh, You know, I was looking at some information about vending machines because this is uh, the topic at hand. And I noted, you know, Japan, of course, has this love of vending machines and uh, you can buy umbrellas, eggs, surgical masks. You can even buy puppies. From a vending machine. Now, I, I know you're not going to go this Come far, on. but... Yes. <laughs> Man, we're not doing puppies. Okay, right. <laughs> headline. Uh, right, headline. <laughs> uh, it, tell, tell us about your, your business and how you put this together and what you're trying to accomplish.
3: Oh, sure. So, we you know, we're a local New York company doing Manhattan and Connecticut and Long Island um, for twenty five years, so a lot of experience in major companies, uh, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, Home Depot, Costco, um, so you know we get a lot of feedback from what people wanted, and the old experience in vending where you kind of have to bend down, put your hand through a door, uh, that's not what people liked anymore. They were looking more for the experience they get every day. They can open a door, pick up a product, look at it. Then decide if they want to buy it, you know, not have to be stuck with what, you know, they push the button. So we developed technology where through biometrics, uh, through your thumb uh, or Apple Pay, you can open the door, look at the item, decide if you like it. If you close the door, you've now purchased it. And then we also added media where when you pick up an item, we deliver content about the item in your hand. So you're not seeing media about things you don't care about. You're seeing media about the item you picked up.
1: So, Tom, I mean, yeah. is this is this what's old is new again? I mean, is this sort of like a return of the 1920s automat, where uh, all of a sudden there's this future of the new real world of just, you know, these doors line, wall-to-wall doors that you could open up and, and get stuff? Uh,
3: I mean, I guess in one respect, yes. You know, sometimes returning to old is uh, what, what works. But then we take the Internet of Things and bring technology today to it. So... Difference between that, on this one, if you use your thumb, we know it's you. We say, like, it would say, hi, it does say, it says, hi, hi Tom, when I open the door. And then it kind of remembers over time what you buy, and it makes different offers based on it. It's an IoT device, so it's connected all the time. And uh, that's our Lisa version. Our Vicky version, which comes out in August, has artificial intelligence in it, where, as you pick up an item, you can have a two-way conversation about the item. So I don't think the Automats did that.
0: Give us a little detail of how much the machines cost and how they're all networked and connected to your supply chain
3: okay so uh, they they are all networked they're on, they're on you know they're web based so they do communicate to each other um, they uh, retail for seven thousand if somebody bought one and in volume they they drop below five thousand
1: How much interest have you uh got how big is, how big is your business?
3: Um, well, my present vending business is about $40 million in sales. Um, in this category, um, it's, we're getting calls worldwide. Um, there's no one that we brought it to in the prototype version. We sold a quarter million prototypes, and we didn't even want to sell them. Um, a quarter million dollars, not a quarter million units. And just gathering information, research, and development. Um, and anywhere we have brought it, they want it.
0: Food. As a vending machine item, specifically coffee, Uh, is that the high-margin business you want to be in?
3: Uh, Well, we're looking to change it. It's like auto retail, so it's a great question. Coffee is definitely something we're interested in, like selling Keurigs and things like that, so people can um, swipe their card or, again, like I said, you'll be able to um, look at the machine, and it'll recognize your eye, believe it or not, and the door open, so... We want, to, we want you to be able to open a door and let the, let the uh, supplier decide what they want to sell. Um, you know, Keurigs disappear. In our machine, they would not because as you take it out, you paid for it. So the things that get left out in the past um, will be now counted. It auto inventories itself through cameras and sensors. So it, it virtually eliminates theft.
1: So, Tom, how big do you think this business could get?
3: Um In the billions.
1: So it's not going to take on Amazon, but it might be uh, a way for some investors to uh, – or some some retailers to at least uh, cater to people's wish to just get stuff on demand and sort of be able to, to pull it out and not have to deal with a human being.
3: Yes, it's, it's that. Or you can um, – it can take on Amazon in, in a way that the units, since they're online, you can see what inventories where and we can direct you. So you don't have to wait overnight. You don't have to wait till the next day. Do I have it? What's the closest – unit, where can I pick it up? Um not not you know, not everybody can get a package delivered to them. They're not home. You know, there's a large population of even New York City that doesn't have doormen. Um so it opens a whole new market of um you know, maybe I want to pick up something and not, you know, not everybody know I'm getting it. It's a surprise gift or something. So uh it, it enables the small guy to go into business. Yeah. You know?
1: Tom Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, founder and Chief Executive Officer of ViaTouch Media, based in New York City. We're talking about the vending machine, and we're all going to see automats springing up all over I the just place. like
0: the name, Lisa. But,
1: oh, Tim, you shouldn't have.
0: You know, in December 2015, then-President Barack Obama, he signed legislation that ended a nearly 40-year ban on the export of crude oil from the United States. The U.S. currently produces over 9 million barrels of oil a day. And here to tell us more about the oil and energy sector is John Groton. He is a director of equity research at Thrivent Asset Management, helping to manage more than $15 billion. He's based in Minneapolis, but he joins us here in our studio. John, thank you very much for being with us. Give people the picture of U.S. oil production and how it fits in to the different refinery uh, uh, parts of the story, because it's different kinds of crude require different kinds of refining processes.
4: That's right, Pam. Thank you for having me. U.S. production is incredibly important right now to global balances. During the down cycle that started in 2014 and continued through 2016, production dropped off over 1 million barrels per day. That is now starting to rebound. Demand globally is robust. It's up 1.4 million barrels per day, and we expect that to go forward. And the U.S. supply is an important component to make sure that demand is is adequately um, compensated for. There is some concern amongst investors, and this is one reason why energy stocks have not Been terrific so far this year, is that we're growing production too fast. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Some of the data that's been shared so far from the Department of Energy, it doesn't look to be as robust as some of the companies are talking about. So we do have demand growth that will continue. We can talk about OPEC separately, but the, to your question directly, uh, US supply is very, very important. You do bring up a, an important point also, though there's different kinds of crudes. There's actually dozens of different varieties and they have different characteristics. Our refining system is optimized to to burn and distill more complicated, heavier crudes, whereas most of our new production is light crudes, and that's one reason why we are exporting for the first time in decades is that we produce the wrong kind of crude for what our refineries use. So it's a little bit of an odd dynamic that we're both an importer and an exporter at the same time. And that's the key reason why the, the, the difference in, in crude uh, that, that our refiners require.
1: Yeah, Jason Sch- uh, Schenker of Prestige Economics actually wrote a column for Bloomberg View on exactly this issue, that perhaps we're looking at the wrong inventory data because of just what you're talking about, uh, that people overestimate just how much the stockpiles have grown and aren't considering exactly what you're talking about, which is the light crude. Um, I, you know, you oversee about $15 billion of assets at Thrivent, right? Yes. Um, how are you positioning, and how have you changed your position with respect to energy-related companies in the wake of some of the bouncing around of the oil price this year, as well as so such diverse speculation, with some people saying it's poised for another crash and other people saying we're headed toward $80 a barrel. The,
4: to be precise, the $15 billion is for our mutual fund group. Thrivent Financial in total has over $100 billion in asset under management. As far as what we're doing in energy, we are positively biased towards it. We are an investment organization. We look out two and three years, not two and three months. And with that, especially our view of where supply demand will be in 2019, 2020 is favorable. Having said that, we don't get too far away from our benchmarks. So most of our work, especially in some of our, our um, balanced funds, we, we tend to stay close to sector neutral. And we fancy ourselves stock stock pickers. And our own attributions show that's that's where we've done best is picking stocks. So we do have a positive energy view. But having said that, we, we don't make a massive bet on any sector. That's just our how we manage funds, uh, regardless of the sector.
0: Increases in production in this high-quality crude that you're talking about comes mainly where? From Texas, from the Permian and the Eagle Ford Basin? If you're an investor and you want to participate, what do you do?
4: That's correct. The, the biggest increases are from the Permian Basin. Activity will pick up in the Eagle Ford in South Texas, as well as the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, close to our hometown. But the Permian really As a driver. And the reason for that is it's been around for 50 plus years, but it's a layer cake of different geologic formations that are still being explored. So we still have the upside for companies that operate there. That's less so the case in Eagleford and Bakken. Every oil play has a life cycle, whether it's onshore, offshore, conventional, unconventional. Bach and Eagleford are further along in that life cycle, but Permian, it's still early. So two of our favorite exploration companies do operate in the Permian. One, Pioneer Natural Resources. Second, Parsley Energy. A curious thing is the CEO of Parsley Energy is the son of the chairman of Pioneer Natural Resources. And the family's been working in the basin for literally since 1966, predecessor organizations of Pioneer. So they have an advantage in that they have worked there. They know the rocks better. They have cheaper leases. Some other companies are paying thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars per acre for rights to drill. Pioneer doesn't have that issue because they've already been there, so yeah. they have a permanent advantage, and is a key reason why that's one of our favorite companies.
1: John, you know, you live. You said near North Dakota and some of the the drilling boom that we we hear talk about. How has the area changed in the past ten years?
4: Um, it, Western North Dakota. It's completely different. Um, Rig count went from twenty. Rigs drilling for oil to 200. It's back to 20. So it was a Western boom boomtown. Um, unfortunately, this industry always cycles. Some people talk about new normals of lower prices. We don't accept that argument. Energy is always a cyclical industry, and now we're we're at w- coming out of one of those down cycles. So the Bakken will pick up from where it is currently. Rig counts are increasing, um, but that one, like I said, the life cycle of what's available in the Bakken is is a little bit longer in the tooth. And when that happens, the rocks can only give you so much oil. It doesn't matter how much better the technology gets. The industry is fantastic, the engineers are brilliant, the scientists are brilliant, even the guys out the rig hands drilling wells, they're always getting better and better, but there's you can't squeeze blood from a turnip and you're running out of time with um, in the Bakken, particularly what opportunity remains there.
1: Or you can't squeeze uh, blood out of a sugar beet. I used to live in Fargo, North Dakota, <laughs> and I've heard a lot from my uh, former co-workers how much it has changed. So it's interesting. I wonder how the uh, the boom and the bust and, and you know has, has affected the whole area. Really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. John Groton, Director of Equity Research at Thrivent Asset Management. We're spending a lot of time talking about U.S. and job growth there and, and political developments here. Uh, in South Africa, there is a and has been a pretty dramatic situation unfolding with a quite a bit of political turmoil going on there, and S&P downgrading that nation to junk. This matters tremendously to the global bond market, since this country has $1.7 trillion of outstanding obligations to get better perspective on what the implications are. I want to bring in Damian Sassauer, who is a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and is here with us. Uh, Damian, what do you make of this? I mean, do you, do you think that the market was just surprised by some of the political turmoil why why was there such a rapid sell-off in the bonds and uh and such a pretty substantial move in the uh currency as well
5: yeah no i mean thank you lisa well um i don't think the markets were that surprised quite frankly i think a lot of this was priced in i think what did surprise um bond investors certainly hard currency emerging market bond investors is that s p maintained its negative outlook and then just uh today this morning Moody's um, put, uh, put the country on review for, uh, they put him on negative credit watch. So that implies that at some point over the next one to three months, Moody's as well may be downgrading um, the country's um, issuer rating. So so yeah, I think markets are trying to digest uh, the fact that, you know, fundamentally the economic situation in South Africa is deteriorating.
0: The president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, uh, fired the uh, finance minister, Pravia Gordon. Why did that take place, and what
5: are the implications? Sure. Well, I mean, Gordon um, and Zuma had been uh, feuding for some time. Um, I think, you know, more recently it was over the management of state-owned companies and, quite frankly, the affordability of nuclear power plants. Um, But far be it for me to kind of comment on that. I think what is sort of, you know, being kind of pushed under the rug is the replacement Malusi Gagaba was the former home affairs minister, and she has very little experience in finance. And so now it's about, you know, the credibility of, you know, the South African government and of the um, the finance ministry to, you know, implement policy.
1: You know, Damien, I'm struck by the sort of Divergence divergence in sentiment between what's going on right now in South Africa and the repercussions in the nation's securities, paired with the incredible rush to emerging markets debt, which we've seen pretty dramatically this year. It's been a record quarter of issuance for emerging markets debt uh, selling dollar bonds this quarter. Can you square the two? I mean, are people just overly exuberant right now?
5: Um, well, uh, yeah, March was a blowout month. Um, on the hard currency side, I think you saw something on the order of $90 billion in hard currency index-eligible new issuance come to market. I mean, that is a record. I think April 2014 was the previous record. But by and large, yeah, I mean, it's just been um, demand has been there. Risk sentiment is, uh, is on. Animal spirits are, are there.
1: Right. But is this going to scare it? Is this going to scare people away?
5: Um, you know, as S&P and the rating agencies take it, they, they give it as well. Um, just this morning, they upgraded Argentina from B minus to single B. I think there's talk now with tax amnesty that Indonesia's um, perhaps going to be upgraded by S&P in the not too distant future. So, you know, I think, you know, you got to kind of um, differentiate between certain countries where fundamentals are weakening and others where they're improving
0: they I mean one of the pictures that we look at is the bank stocks in south africa they got killed uh, earlier today a decline based on this uh, s&p global ratings uh, cut is there a bargain perhaps because i understand that the capital uh, cushion that the banks have is substantial.
5: Well, the problem, I guess, um, in terms of from a from a fixed income investor uh, standpoint, is you just have to look back at 2014 with African uh, Bank, which was, you know, one of the largest issuers of credit to low and middle income households in South Africa. And when they went bankrupt, that left a lot of foreign investors with a bad taste in their mouth. I think. And so Standard Bank, Nedbank, Rand Merchant Bank. I mean, they're all some wonderful, you know, very. Conservative, um, high, highly regarded banks in South Africa, and that sector. I mean, I haven't looked. I'm sure there is value there, um, but you know, from a uh, fundamental standpoint, you know, household uh, leverage has gone down, but. Public debt in South Africa is at the highest point since the turn of the century. It's 50% of GDP.
1: So speaking about that, I mean, is there a potential opportunity uh, in South African local currency debt with yields above 9.2%? That's up from 8.5% earlier uh, in March.
5: Um, Yeah, no. So, I mean, yields have definitely... You know, rocketed higher. Uh, you know, the ten-year I think is forty pips over where it was just five trading days ago. That's
1: almost half a percentage
5: yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at almost nine percent, and I think it had touched nine percent at some point. So, so certainly there is opportunity, but not without its fair share of risk.
0: Well, that risk also uh, should take into account what the gold industry, because isn't that really what underpins South Africa's? Uh, Pin that is an
5: excellent point. A, a, um, a depreciating rand, which is what we're seeing right now, is actually good for South African mining companies, right? Because they export, you know, platinum. Their and product
0: gold. is sold in it, dollars, and their costs are in rand.
5: Bingo. So you're talking about
1: the many idiosyncratic stories. Are there any other flashpoints for political risk that you're seeing right now uh, that you're kind of watching more closely in the wake of South Africa's issues?
5: So within South Africa, I mean, I think you've, I mean, my goodness, you've had some of the large labor unions calling on Zuma to resign. Um, You've had the former president, you know, calling for that as well. Um, You've got labor strikes, you've got power outages, um, you've got South African corporates, which, quite frankly, are finding more opportunities abroad just because the operating conditions locally are so challenging. And so, look... You know, it's going to take some time for you know, whoever is um, in power to write the ship. And I think we have in December. Um, I think that, in fact, is what Zoom is kind of priming for by sort of surrounding himself with people that he trusts, um, hence the ousting of Gordon. But yeah, you know, we'll see, we'll see how things kind of play through the end of the year. Um, the ANC is not altogether happy with um, where things are at right now, though.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Damien Sassauer is a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, providing a unique and real-time research and context for a variety of industries, also markets and government factors that affect business.